Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Today is Wednesday, the 28th of November. Is that true? 28th. Did um, you just unbuckle your seatbelt while I'm driving? I did. I unbuckled. Well, you better Live buckle back dangerously. up. Live dangerously. I've got my helmet on. <laughs> I'm good. That's going to help. Yeah. Why don't we use helmets when we're driving? Probably save know. some lives, right? Because we don't want to look ridiculous. But if everyone was doing it. Well, there's that. I mean, it might save some things. Hard to say. Yeah. To Full armor. Full body armor. There you go. What do we got this morning? Well, I'll tell you what I got. I got an update because I know everyone's dying to know about uh, the saga, the continuing saga of my mammogram. What? No. No, listen. We're not going to talk about your mammogram today. No, right? no, listen. I said every other podcast we're going to bring it up. I get a bill. You have dents in your breasts. I do have dense breasts. Listen, I got a bill in the mail. Okay? I'm like looking at it going, no, my insurance pays 100% of preventative. I was told this very specifically, which is why I did it. Okay, so must be a mistake, right? So I went to my provider that was in network, at which time they said, hey, you should get this mammogram because, you know, you're due and you've never had one. Okay, sounds good. I'll, I'll do it. I got insurance. Well, why don't we set you up an appointment? Make it easy. I'm like, sweet. You'll set up. That's awesome. Okay. Sets up the appointment, tells me where it is, hands me a card. I go to the appointment. I do it. Three weeks, four weeks later, $515 plus $150 for uh, the reading. Yeah. 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 Well, what? So I call up my insurance company and I'm like, clearly there's been a mistake because this is preventative care, which you're, you say is 100%. Oh, oh, well, the place that you went to is out of network. Okay. So was that my responsibility as to, well, apparently, yes. It was my responsibility to call and make sure that the place that my provider who is in network set me up with an appointment to this other place. Now, I get that I haven't had insurance forever right? These are new things to me. But to me, it seems like that continuation of care, they should have taken into consideration if my insurance was paying for it. Am I crazy? A little bit. Dang it. Not necessarily, though. I, I think somewhere along the lines, I think your primary care physicians should make sure you know you need to go to an in-network place. And the out-of-network place should have said, hey, you're going to receive a bill for this. That's what I would think, network. right? That's weird. Super frustrating. I'm so sorry. I'm I'm that not stinks. I'm not super happy about it. They would have paid one hundred percent had I gone to a hospital five miles down the road. Oh jeez. Right? One hundred percent. Now I've got six hundred and seventy five six hundred five six hundred and sixty five. Thank you. I just did the math. Dollar bill I gotta pay. Um, so thanks a lot, mammogram. Okay, so let we can talk a little bit about the obscenity of the fact that, and I don't necessarily want to tick off all of my friends that are radiologists. You might happen to have a brother who's one. I 
believe so. $150. Do you know how many mammograms a radiologist could read in an hour? I would be I willing to bet you he could he could read 50 an hour. Wow. Really? Yeah. A mammogram, uh, they don't quick. spend five minutes on it. Yeah. I have no idea. What if they read 50 an hour for times 150 bucks? What are they making? Well, Way too much money for me. $7,500 an hour. That's they make, obscene. They make a lot of money. 150 for a reading of a mammogram seems obscene to me. Yeah. Look, I... Uh, I'm a physician. I make a fair amount of money, but man, that's there's some obscenities in American medicine for sure. Yeah, so. it sure seems like it. Well, anyway. Well, the other thing is though, there's some things that are really that make it difficult. I think in American medicine, and that is one of those things is supposedly you have to charge self-paying patients the same amount you charge uh, patients with insurance. Oh, do you? Oh, Supposedly. Shoot. I was going to ask, I was going to call the hospital and ask for a cash pay price. Uh, no, you should do that. I think one of the things we should do, one of the things that would help medicine, I think, is if we, and I was on a little, a little bit of a political campaign to try to do this, is to be much more transparent about what our prices are. Everybody should publish their prices and there should be some negotiation. Yeah. I, I think... You should call and say, I'm not paying 150 bucks for some guy to look at my thing for five five minutes or two minutes. You should, there should be some negotiation. I want see, the discount. Yeah. Discount should, radiologist. Well, there should be something along those lines and everybody should publish instead of this. Unknown. I, I had no idea. I had no idea I think idea those rates should be published cost. and visible to everyone. Then you could pick the cheapest guy in town if you wanted to. Yeah. Now, uh, sometimes when you pick the cheapest guy, you get the worst guy. Yeah. But. But you get to make that decision as a consumer. Yeah, right? I think Just like that. With everything I else. think that would be helpful. Yeah. What else? BYU lost. BYU lost. Yeah. To the University of Utah Utes. BYU played a brilliant first half and forgot to play the second half. Yeah. The Utes didn't play very well in the first half, but played a brilliant second half and won the game. Yep. So, that's it. I'm not going to waste any more energy on that. That's eight times in a row. All of my Utah fans, all of my Utah fans who are friends of mine have been respectful. Kind of hard to get beat eight years in a row, but whatever. Yeah. It is what it is. Yep. We played yep. We played pretty well, I thought. I think Utah's a better team this year. Yeah. So I think the yeah. better team wound up winning. Yeah. And, and but at I the think end... we showed improvement. Yeah. Yeah, I thought we did we were really that, well. We were definitely in that game. I honestly was just super grateful we didn't get blown out, so I wasn't too upset about it. Anyway, hey, what are we talking about today? Um, stuff. Stuff. Matt. Let's talk about Matt. You know I a guy really named Matt? I really like Matt. I, I don't I, care for He's Matt. a good guy, I think. Is he? Yeah. All right. No, let's talk. We, we had discussed no, earlier. No, actually, I love Matt. I know quite a few. I'm kidding. I love all the mats in my life. Hello, Bernard. And Beekert. And some other people. Our old CEO of uh, Highland Ridge was Matt. Liked him. Cool guy. See, there you go. Bunch of mats. Hi, mats. Uh, no, we want to talk about Matt, which is in the field of addiction medicine, is an is an acronym. What are those things? Sure. Yeah. It's an abbreviation. Yeah. 
It's an abbreviation for medically assisted treatment, and we wanted to talk about that a little bit. Um, medically assisted treatment can be can mean a number of things, but Samsha had a definition. Did you still you still have that somewhere? Oh, I can pull it up real quick, like. Samsha's got a definition, but in my mind, it is using medication to assist in the treatment of drug and alcohol uh, use disorders. It's not the only thing that you would do, but it is also something that is not done enough, and that is the use of medications. We admit this thing is a disease. We call this thing a disease, and uh, most diseases are treated quite medically. And so to leave medicine out of the equation doesn't seem very responsible to me. Anyway, I think you've got SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has a definition of MAT, and it goes like this. Well, let's see, Medicaid, okay, so MAT, Medicated Assisted Treatment. This is the use of FDA-approved medications in combination with counseling and behavioral therapies to provide a, quote, whole patient, end quote, approach to the treatment of substance use disorders. All right. I hate it. <laughs> I'll tell you why I hate it, though. Okay. I really do sort of hate it. Because, so there was a time, a long time ago, one of my favorite pieces of Matt is... Uh, a medication called Vivitrol. There was a time a long time ago where they released, where the FDA approved Vivitrol for the treatment of alcohol use disorder only. So apparently at that time, if we used Vivitrol for opioid use disorder, then we weren't doing MAT. Mm. I, don't, I think that's kind of bogus. The yeah. use of FDA approved medications. There's a lot of medications that can be helpful that aren't necessarily FDA approved. Or, anyway, or very specific is. to what they what they consider is MAT for substance use disorders, right. right? Right. So let's let's review what those are specifically. So so in opiate addiction, for example, there's three FDA approved medications. Okay. Right? Is that true? There might three, be more. Three four opiate use disorder. I'm thinking there might be more. I'm guessing you've left out fexofenadine. Dang it. I don't even know what that is. It's a, it's a glorified clonidine. Oh. But it was approved for opioid use disorder. Oh, yeah. New, it's a newer medication. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. So I think An there's extended four. release or something like that, right? Yeah. Uh, clonidine. But, yeah. Let, but, but the truth is that's not even all that helpful. Let's be honest. I mean, the three... The three that are going to be mostly helpful that have been apparently shown to save lives are... Methadone. 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 Buprenorphine. Buprenorphine. And... you got to do a big buprenorphine thing. Buprenorphine. <laughs> By the way, I'm a little under the weather today, so my voice is probably... Uh, I sound a little more monotone than usual, which I usually sound monotone, but... I'll make up for it. I'm more today. Thanks. Yep. What's the third med? Naltrexone. Naltrexone. Okay. And uh, do we want to pick one and talk about it? What do we want to do? You're in charge well, of this. 
Am I? I'm not in charge. Yeah. Don't put me in charge. I just voted. I don't like being in charge. I just voted you abstain. That makes me it was nervous. one to zero. That makes me nervous. Well, you know, we could go through the list, but, uh, you know, I think, I think off the, off the cuff, I, what I'm seeing. So we both work in addiction. We both work with drug addicts every day, right? What I'm seeing change in the last 10 years since I uh, got into recovery is this really strong push by the government to promote two of the three uh, that we mentioned, specifically isn't methadone that, and buprenorphine. Isn't that funny? It's it's I, hilarious. Uh, here's uh, maybe funny is not the right word, but maybe I'm way off base, but. In my mind, the far, far and away, the most effective of those three is is naltrexone. There's no question that naltrexone is far and away the most effective of those three. In my mind, yeah. And yet, the government's pushing the other two way more heavily than they are. Vivitrol but or naltrexone is, because this is all based on statistics, right? So what they're saying is there's less opiate overdoses when people use methadone and buprenorphine um, which is they are both opiates uh, methadone being a full agonist and buprenorphine being a partial opiate agonist um, but they're both opiates do you want to explain those things to our listening audience please, do you want me to please go so what a full opiate agonist does is it binds to an opiate receptor in the brain so the, there's three types of opiate receptors in the brain. Frankly, only one of them is really important to us uh, as far as opiate uh, use disorder, and that is the mu opiate receptor. And um, a full opiate agonist binds to that mu opiate receptor and turns it on all the way. The mu opiate receptor results in... Uh, the activation of the mu opiate receptor then results in all of the feelings people get from opiates, the euphoria and all of that, okay? A partial opiate agonist binds to the mu opiate receptor and only turns it on part of the way, not quite, a, not quite all of the way. And then the third medication in the category is an opioid antagonist, which means it also binds to the receptor, but it doesn't turn it on at all. It shuts it down. And that's the naltrexone. That's naltrexone, exactly. So there are three, there are three different medications. They work slightly differently. One's a full opiate agonist, one's a partial, and one is a complete blocker or antagonist of, at the opiate receptor. Okay, okay. So, without any blocker at all, what that means is, if you if you use one that is a full opiate agonist, okay, then, then there's only one of those in this list, methadone. You could also use something else on top of that and still get a greater high. Yes. And there is no reason you couldn't get more of a high by using some heroin or some, unless you've just got so much methadone in your system that all the opiate receptors are already bound. Yeah. But there are drugs that bind with greater affiliation to the receptor than other drugs. And so you could kick some of the you could kick some of the, of the methadone off of the receptor if you have a molecule that binds to it with a greater affinity. But frankly, if you've got a ton of methadone on, you're probably not going to get much uh, benefit from another opiate agonist. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. The 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 other the other concept or the other thing about uh, buprenorphine is buprenorphine's a only a partial opioid agonist, but it binds with a great affinity to that receptor. It's hard to kick buprenorphine off of an opiate receptor by bombarding it with any other types of medications. Right. So once the buprenorphine's bound, it's bound pretty strongly. Methadone, not quite as much. Yeah. But don't we still hear that methadone is the, quote, gold standard? Yes. According to yes, the government? Yes, we, we do. So the All government the has decided, and again, based on these statistics, that there's less... Um, overdose deaths. Overdose deaths. Supposedly. They're using an, an opiate, a full agonist opiate, to treat opiate use disorder. Okay? So, so I immediately see the craziness that's, um, that's supported by the government as far as why are we using an opiate to treat an opiate addiction, you know? And I, I think my issue is that they are jumping straight to harm reduction. Yes. In, and it is, it is harm reduction. Right, statistically, right, it is right, but is that actually treating an opiate use disorder, especially on let's say the first time somebody goes into treatment, or even, sure. even the second or third time? You know, I I don't love the term gold standard of treatment for uh, using methadone because it doesn't give somebody the ability to attempt to do it without an opiate. Right. You know, I look back to my personal story and I'll tell you if I if I had been given the choice in my addiction as I'm just getting into recovery, if I had been given the choice of hey, there's this great answer to your opiate addiction, an opiate, you can still get high, and I'm not sure I'm reading through this literature going, it's not a substitute. It do, you cannot get high on this and I'm thinking, what? Where, who's who are, writing this? Who are they asking these questions to? Are you kidding me? You cannot get high on a on on methadone. An, of course, you get high on methadone. And ask any drug addict who's on it. You can't possibly right? not get high on methadone. You get high on Suboxone. But they're, it says very specifically. Drug, the government is putting out literature that says these drugs you do not get high off of, and they are not abused. Which is just not and, our experience, right? And no diversion. Right? And, no, and there's yeah. no diversion. And I'm like, wait a second. That's just not our experience in treating opiate addicts. I don't know where they're getting all these opiate addicts that as soon as they get on methadone or buprenorphine, they never use another drug for the rest of their lives. Right. Right. Listen, half, the, half of the... Uh, I don't know this number, so I shouldn't say half because this isn't true. Most of the methadone clinics I know of have patients that are also on benzos, which turns out to be the deadliest combination in the United States, methadone specifically, and benzodiazepines. And we see it often, yeah. right? And, and there's no overdose deaths? Yeah. I don't get it. This is, this is under uh, drugabuse.gov. This is the SAMHSA website. Okay. Addressing myths about medications, okay? Methadone and buprenorphine, and in capital letters, do not substitute one addiction for another. So those, when I read that sentence, my first thought is, that's an opinion. Based on what? 
right? I mean, that's not a statistic. Yeah, based what, on what? what? How can you say that? Because I, I completely, first of all, I completely disagree with that. We can, we can it's argue. It's not true. We, we can, no, we don't even need to argue the harm reduction part of methadone. Right. Okay. Could it, could it prevent, um, and especially in a short period of time, could it prevent somebody from overdosing on heroin? Yes. Okay. Statistically, we know that. And if that's what you're going for in the treatment of opiate use disorder, hey, I'd rather you be on methadone or buprenorphine than shooting up uh, heroin in Pioneer in Park. A house. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. I'll go with that. But why is that our first line of treatment? There's a place. Why is that there's a place even for considered that. first line? There's definitely a place for harm reduction in treatment. Definitely. It just shouldn't necessarily be on someone's first encounter with treatment. Exactly. But that's the direction that the government seems to be pushing us. I, I don't use uh, harm reduction as a first-line treatment very often. And I know a bunch of people that do, frankly. I just think that gives somebody doesn't give somebody the opportunity to lead a totally clean and sober lifestyle, which I happen to think is better than not leading a totally sober and clean lifestyle. I think it robs somebody from the opportunity to try it right and again back to my personal story i'm so grateful that was not presented to me because i don't think that i would have the life today yes. if i would have I, been thrown on methadone i guarantee it or buprenorphine i'm for sorry that matter. if you think methadone doesn't affect your brain you're just dead wrong if you think even buprenorphine doesn't affect your brain you're just wrong about that and again go ask any drug addict who is on or has been on either one of these and if they're in their honest phase they'll tell they'll back they'll back us up on this There's right no we hear it all the time There's no question Listen suboxone maintenance isn't working for you you're still using other drugs right Happens And, all and the if time. they're in their honest phase they will agree Yep you're right it's not working for me Guess Happens what I get a provider who's going to give it to me anyway and I'm going for it you know, and that that's the frustrating part that we can't change people's opinion about not everybody needs to be on Suboxone. Who is that behind us? I don't know. She can't know. She parked right in the middle of the space, like Oh. But well, she takes two. To, yeah, she's taking she up two, two spaces pretty. That's fine. Sometimes right? you need two. She's high. So uh, here was another interesting point that, that you recently, uh, we recently discussed is methadone and buprenorphine for opiate use disorder, okay? Why do we not have a replacement therapy for cocaine use disorder or alcohol use disorder or benzodiazepine, or benzodiazepine use disorder? Oh. Why don't we have those things? Hey, you know what? To, to treat your... Uh, alcohol use disorder just take a shot here's one shot of whiskey every two hours okay that might be excessive might be three times a day there you go all right shot of whiskey three times a day oh and it blocks You're, all of their alcohol and you won't you won't go back to wait that is the same concept it is exactly of these the medications concept. specifically methadone what we what we have done is so there is a component of getting high that comes from quick acting, right? So what we've done basically is traded quick acting opiates for long acting opiates. So there, 
it's a little bit harder to get high on a quick on a long acting opiate than it is on an immediate acting opiate. Sure. But you can still get high. Look, pe- people tell me all the time the reason people like shooting opiates, putting them in their veins, is it gets to them quicker. Yeah. I didn't do it that way when I was using drugs. I put it into my muscle. The onset was a lot slower. But my high lasted longer is all that meant. Yeah. It didn't hit me all at once and like knock me for a loop necessarily, but it lasted for four hours instead of intravenously where it lasted an hour. And so the concept of what we're doing for opiate use disorder treatment is to just switch a short acting opiate for a long acting opiate. And supposedly that's way better and I just don't get it. And I don't know why more people aren't talking about it. And I think this is why I wanted to bring it up in this podcast is because we hear so much of the revolution of, you know, let's get everybody on Suboxone. Everybody get their waiver so that we can prescribe a bunch of Suboxone. And that's the answer. And I think we cannot be the only ones out there thinking, wait a second, this is not first-line treatment. This is not, this should not be considered gold standard. I think this has a time and a place. I think somebody who has been to their 18th treatment in the past two years and is shooting up in Heroin Park and can't stop after the 18th time. Okay. There's a place called Heroin Park? Did I say Heroin Park? No, I didn't. Did you mean Pioneer Park? AKA Heroin Park. Heroin Park is (laughs) is a great name for it. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the guy. That's yeah, the guy. Sure. Get him on methadone. Get him on subject. And the truth, truth is 18 is not the number. But we've seen people that have gone to 18 treatments. Yeah. The truth is maybe two to four could be the okay. number even. Okay. And I would go for but, that too. But the reason you said 18, we've actually seen people in their 18th treatment. In two years. They've now wasted $300,000 worth of treatment dollars. And they're no better off than they were ahead of time. Yeah. Maybe we make a cutoff with insurance and say you can go to three treatments before you have to start working down towards harm reduction. Yeah, yeah. Or one treatment. I don't know what the answer is, but 18 is clearly too much. Yeah. The guys that you see that are on their 18th treatment, that treatment success with those guys is very, very, very low. Yeah. So let's move to something that might be more successful. Anyway, when we come back, we got to take a break now, but when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about buprenorphine, and then uh, I definitely want to talk about Vivitrol for sure. So. Yeah. Yep. Sounds good. All right. Okay. Till tomorrow. No. Until, yeah. Until our- Till until, next time. Until right through the break here. <laughs> okay. All right. See ya. about 100 patients and I saw two and then we're back. So we're <laughs> Is that our, how it works? We're on our drive home now and want to finish up. Also, it's raining, so if you're hearing any weird yeah. background noise, we don't know what that's going to sound like, but yeah. we probably have got a rainstorm. But that's the uh, nature of our podcast. We, drunk, we recorded in a car, so I've recently come across a couple of 
recording studios that we could use, but it would require us not to be driving and that sort of thing. And find extra time. I don't know if we world. have that kind of time. Yeah. yeah, that's the problem is I can find time when we're driving, but I don't know if I can find time that we just have to sit down in a studio and do this. Yeah. So I came across two studios, though. Alema Harrington has a studio at Renaissance Ranch's headquarters. Oh, no kidding. And then the place where we spent Thanksgiving has a recording studio in it that we could probably use. Oh, that's cool. That's a little closer to home, too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about what we were talking about. So hey, we Robert were... Redford's on that billboard. What billboard? The Sundance billboard. Well, I think that was Robert Redford skiing. Pretty sure. Interesting. I mean, he does own the resort. He does own a ski resort. Kind of, kind of owns it. I'd so. ski more if I owned a ski resort. I think I'd put myself on the billboard if I owned one. Quite frankly. Listen, I'd put you on a billboard if I owned one. What? Yeah. Alright, so I've seen that smile on your face when you ski. It's oh, big. I love it. Yeah. So we were talking about, you know, we spent some time with methadone, we spent some time with buprenorphine and such, but I, I wanted to talk about buprenorphine a little more. It seems to me like the push from the government is actually headed more and more towards buprenorphine and away from methadone, which I think, if that's true, would be a major step. Yeah. Because I do think that buprenorphine patients function in society better than methadone patients do. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to talk about a couple of issues with with uh, buprenorphine. One of them is when the when the medication first came out, when buprenorphine was first used on the market, it came out as Suboxone. Suboxone came in. First, it came out in a tablet form, which was administered sublingually. It had to dissolve under your tongue, and whatever you swallowed in your stomach didn't work because the buprenorphine is broken down in the stomach fairly rapidly by stomach acid. So whatever buprenorphine you swallow doesn't give you much in the way of symptom relief, pain relief, that sort of thing. And there's also a blocker in there. Why am I getting over? I don't know. I don't know either. I'm not going to get over there's also a blocker in there, though, that supposedly blocks all other opiates. If you try to inject it or snort it, supposedly then the blocker is stronger, okay? So it's not as abusable. Am I making sense at all? Yeah. One of the things that really disturbs me about this, though, is that what the company has tried to sell us for a very long period of time is that this blocker was really important. And so once buprenorphine, once Suboxone lost its patent, then other people could start putting, other companies could start putting buprenorphine in different formulations. And they came out with a generic form of Subutex, which had buprenorphine and no blocker in it, okay? One of the things you need to understand as a layperson about the blocker is that the blocker blocks, binds to opiate receptors, and doesn't let any other opiates block them, but buprenorphine binds stronger than the actual opiate blocker itself. And so it's not really the naloxone that's in Suboxone that's causing the blockade, it's the buprenorphine. Yeah. And so they always told us for years, the company that makes Suboxone told us how important the blocker was. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, thanks. I'm getting over way too early. 
always told us how important the blocker was, but in fact, that's not true. Buprenorphine blocks better than the naloxone does. Yeah, yeah. And so you don't need it. And so this company tried for years to convince us how important it was so that they could keep selling Suboxone and make money when in fact Subutex generically was half the price. Yeah. So I've always hated that about the way that drug companies kind of approach these things sometimes and don't tell us the truth. The truth is buprenorphine, in my mind, is absolutely every bit as effective as Suboxone, which contains the blocker. Yeah. You get no extra benefit out of that blocker at all. Yeah. Other Except for in the outpatient setting where it could be abused, you know, because if somebody does shoot it up or inject it, yes. supposedly the, the blocker is supposed to prevent that high from happening. So that would be a case where Suboxone would probably be a better idea in the outpatient setting, from what I understand on that. Yeah, I think I think that depends on what you're looking for. But I, I agree with you, it could have that benefit. The thing is, as far as abuse of other opiates, right. you can't use buprenorphine in another opiate and get high off of it. Right. Now, the common misperception that you can't get high off of buprenorphine is not true. You can. Wait a second. You can I just take read... it normally and get high. Wait a second. I just read on SAMHSA website this morning that that's not true, that that's a myth. It's a myth that you get high on Suboxone. SAMHSA didn't talk to any of my patients. <laughs> yeah. They really For real didn't. though, right? I mean, isn't they that really crazy? Didn't. Listen, early on in my existence, I took some Suboxone. I got high. I got high. Early in recovery, I took some Suboxone once. I got high. Did you really? Yeah. And I was high. I felt great. Well, you want to know my story? I took it once. So, so in rehab, at the rehab that I went to, you could, you had to, they gave you your bottle of pills. And I was on um, Subutex, I think. I can't remember if it was Suboxone or Subutex. Probably Subutex during uh, while I was detoxing and in the beginning of the rehab part and the tech gave me the bottle well of course I'm in my addict brain right, right. I just want to get high right so I distracted him real quick go oh, look a squirrel yeah. he turns around I pull pour out half the bottle into my you know probably 10 10 of them into my hand and then give him back the bottle and ran into my room all excited that I was gonna you know get some relief and took them all. Well, I didn't know anything about this medication. I just swallowed them. Sure. Waited 20 minutes. Nothing. What a waste. Right? Yep. Well, but here's it. the thing is I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful because if I would have gotten <coughs> high that day, I think I would have Continued joined the forces of, yeah, I need this forever. Yep. Right? Yep. Well, there's a couple of things that you need to, that the public needs to know about Subutex and Suboxone, and one is, uh, I don't think we've described this yet, but as a partial opiate agonist, what that means is it binds to the opiate receptor but turns it part of the way on, and, and there, because of that factor, there is a ceiling where you can't get any real, any more effect out of buprenorphine. At 32 milligrams, you get maximum effect of buprenorphine, and the maximum effect comes because all of the opiate receptors are bound with buprenorphine. 
There's no way to get every single receptor, but 99% of the receptors are found with buprenorphine. You can't get any much more effect than that. If you yeah. bind all 100%, it's going to be 1% better, maybe. Yeah. Okay, so one of the things is there is a ceiling. You couldn't take eight tablets at once and get a benefit. The other thing is the way you took it, it only works if it absorbs. Yeah, If it absorbs sublingually, or you could use it intranasally, something that, anything that bypasses the stomach, essentially. You could use it. So you could inject it and you can use it intranasally, but you can't take it. You can't swallow it into your stomach because buprenorphine molecule doesn't survive that stomach acid. Yeah. So. Well, I'm glad I didn't know that. So you didn't know that, but I took it once in early recovery and I was fairly high. Yeah. That was fine for me. It would have worked great for me. Uh, but the reason it worked great is because I felt exactly like I felt when I was using opiates. And so I don't know how people are claiming you don't get high on it. It's just not true. Yeah. So. Well, and also in there it talks about the only reason why it's diverted is for withdrawal symptoms. And I don't find that to be true It's not at true all. at all. There's a it's giant, not what we're hearing out There's a giant street. black market for Suboxone on the street. Yeah. And it happens when people sort of run out of money. And they can take a film that lasts 36 hours or a pill that lasts 36 hours and not have to worry about being in withdrawal for 36 hours. Yeah. Rather than, you know, they can buy that for about the same price they can buy a dose of heroin. But the dose of heroin lasts them four hours and the dose of buprenorphine lasts them 36 hours. Yeah. So when you're running low on funds, people will turn to Suboxone sometimes just because of how long the half-life is. And not just to prevent the withdrawal symptoms, but to get no, high. to stay high. Yeah. Right, exactly. To keep them, it does keep them from being in withdrawal, but it also, yeah. it'll work in a pinch. I'm sorry, it's not as good a high as heroin, I agree, but it's not a, it's not a no high. Yeah. For sure, it alters the brain. So anyway, there's, there's the buprenorphine thing. That's all I wanted to say about buprenorphine. There's way more we could talk about. But one of the things I wanted to rail against today, essentially, was this concept that it's a cure for opiate use disorder. I'm sorry. I I am going against a lot of people in this, but it is a substitution for opiate use disorder. I don't think it needs to be given to every single patient on their first try. Yeah, and what, but when you call I something think, a first-line treatment, which is what right, they're calling it... Right. That's the that's a problem, right? And so I think not... there are people in our in our federal government and people in our community that believe that that's how it should be. Let's just get everyone on Suboxone. Yes. And I, First so I treatment think episode, that's... you put them on Suboxone for the rest of their life, yeah. I guess, is where we're headed. Yeah. And I don't believe that. I believe that completely negates the concept of, let's say, 12-step recovery. 12-step yeah. recovery is built on abstinence, and it works. Is it foolproof? No. Does it work for everybody? Not even close. But it's it, it's better than non-12-step treatment. It's better than no treatment, for sure. And so why do we deprive people of this ability to try complete abstinence on their first episode when they haven't yet proven that they can't do that? Well, and another thing that we didn't quite mention is um, suboxone maintenance isn't cheap. No. Right? You still have, no, to go have to go see a doctor. See a doctor and rarely basis. will a doctor prescribe a drug addict 
three months worth of medications without seeing them. Yeah. You got to see them. I used to see my people initially every week for at least a month, and then every two weeks for a couple of months, and then every month after that. That's a lot. That's a lot of money just in doctor's fees. So yeah, it's it's an expensive form of treatment. Suboxone is about if you get the films, it's about eight dollars a film. If you get Subutex tablets, it's about four dollars for an eight milligram dose. But a lot of people maintenance wise don't aren't on eight milligrams. So a lot of people maintenance wise are on sixteen. Yeah. And I know of some people that are on twenty four. And I know of a few people on thirty two. So you're talking about 32 milligrams is going to be four Subutex tablets at at four bucks. You're talking about 16 bucks a day plus seeing a doctor every single month. Yeah. That's not cheap either. Why is that our first go-to? I just don't understand. Like you and I, frankly, don't use Suboxone. No. We go to 12-step meetings sometimes. We use 12-step recovery. Guess how much those meetings cost me? A buck if I'm generous, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the other thing, you know, it's just kind of such a, well, we don't, uh, uh, abstinence doesn't really work. Like, really? Because I see it, and it's not just me. Rooms I have full friends. of people that are abstinence. I have friends and coworkers who abstinence totally works for them. Yes. Just don't know why we would rob somebody from the opportunity to at least try it. I, yeah, I, I, think I totally understand the concept that abstinence isn't for everybody. I can I can totally believe that concept. But abstinence is for nobody, I can't believe. Yeah. Because abstinence for me is the way I live better. Let's quickly talk about naltrexone as the, uh, as well, the I other mat. I think, I think we've beat Suboxone to death. The other mat. Uh, well, you know, we just see so many issues. There's a lot as of stuff. As, we'll probably do more on podcasts on clamoring. It for a medication, you have to have the red flags going of like, wait a second. I mean, they will fight for it. That's nuts. Okay, so naltrexone comes in comes in two forms. Well, it basically an oral medication. Okay. An oral medication that you take daily okay. and then a monthly injection. And then I think there's maybe a three or four month injection of Vivitrol. There's an implant. There? Implant? Okay. But the implants aren't FDA approved. Okay. And they're usually made. Excuse me. They're usually made in China. Oh yeah. Well. And it's not. I mean, there've been some problems with them because it doesn't go through FDA scrutiny. And I'm sorry, the FDA doesn't always do us a great service, but they do provide for cleaner medications than non-FDA. So, so you essentially have two forms of it: the oral it, daily pill and the monthly injection. Of Vivitrol. And for me, I would think that real, if you were going to use a first line, quote unquote, first line treatment, especially for somebody going through treatment for the first, maybe second time, it should be naltrexone. We should be pushing that way more. And why don't we? Because addicts don't like it as much, right? For sure addicts don't like it. Addicts are not going to be fighting. Have you you ever, have you ever had an addict Bag for no, for no. naltrexone? Yes, exactly. No. Never. Never have I seen that. No. Have you ever had an addict beg for Suboxone? All the time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so so naltrexone is the blocker that we've been talking about. Yeah, it, naloxone and naltrexone are both essentially the same thing. 
naltrexone is the oral pill form and the shot form. Naloxone is what's in suboxone. But they're essentially the same, the same medication. So it blocks the opioid receptor sites and prevents you from getting high. I mean, that's essentially yes, what it does. does. It also works in alcohol use disorder in the same mechanism of action in that it blocks those opioid receptor sites. It's the receptor site that causes the euphoria in alcohol use. Correct. So it's not the same receptor sites as alcohol, but it's that when you get the dopamine rush from alcohol use, that binds to those new receptors, the opioid receptors, and you get the high or the euphoria. So that blocks that. So if you were to drink on it, you, get, it just, you just don't get high. You get less, you certainly get less, uh, you get less effect from the alcohol. Yeah. Um, the, the way it went down, you've heard me tell this a bunch, but the way it went down is when they first were doing FDA studies on naltrexone, on Vivitrol, the injectable form of naltrexone, they thought at the time, and this was over 20 years ago, they thought at the time there were more alcoholics. So they tested it first in alcoholics because they thought if they could prove it works in alcoholics, they'd have a wider audience. And their job is, of course, to sell drugs. So they wanted to sell it to the most people. So they thought there were way more alcoholics than opiate addicts. So they studied it in, in alcoholics and showed that it decreased cravings, increased links to sobriety, increased decreased number of drinking days, decreased number of heavy drinking days, and kind of made alcoholics feel this general sense of well-being. So they then, having proved that to the FDA, they brought it on the market for use in alcohol use disorder. And it does all of those things. Now, we knew as an opiate blocker it was going to work for opiates. Mm -hmm. They couldn't, the company couldn't advertise such because they hadn't proven that to the FDA yet. But doctors were using it for opiate addiction when it first came out, even though the company couldn't, couldn't advertise that it worked for that. But so it's been used, been on the market now for uh, a while, almost 20 years. It feels like they went back and did the studies. They do have the patents now for. I mean, they do have the ability to advertise that it works for opiate addiction. In fact, it's probably even better for opiate addiction than it is for alcohol use disorder. But it's a great medication. It doesn't alter the brain, right? It doesn't make somebody high at all, and. If an opiate addict goes out and uses heroin, having Vivitrol on board, they get just no benefit out of the heroin. They don't get sick. They just get no benefit. Now, the timing is kind of tricky in those things because if you have opiates on board and get a Vivitrol shot, you do get sick. Mm -hmm. But if you have Vivitrol on board and then decide to use, you just won't get any benefit. You won't get high. You won't feel good. It won't help your pain. It won't none of that stuff. So I think it's a great med because it doesn't alter the brain. Yeah. We're jumping to these meds that are very similar to the meds that we're jumping off of. Vivitrol is the only one that's not similar in any way to any of the meds that they're jumping off of for Matt. Yeah. So I think it's a great thing. Now, you and I have personally heard stories of people in this area who were giant Vivitrol supporters before. I know a guy that helps, that is the head of a treatment center who at one point, a, they did a study at his treatment center that showed that Vivitrol kept people in treatment longer. And it did that because it decreases cravings. And the opiate addicts know that if they leave, they can't get high anyway. Right? With the um, injection. Yeah. Right. And so they proved that Vivitrol actually retained people in treatment longer and, and then actually ma made their bottom line better. Because patients stay in treatment longer if they're on Vivitrol. And so 
this company started essentially giving away Vivitrol to anybody who didn't have insurance that would cover it. Well, you and I have both heard from that particular company that they're now worried about using Vivitrol because some people, they have found some Vivitrol on board in opiate overdose deaths. And what happens is if you have this blocker on board and try to get high to, in order to get high, you, you could in theory get high, but you have to use giant amounts of opiates. And so it is dangerous to use while you're on Vivitrol. And so for, Well, if you're overusing, right? If your whole goal is to if get, you're trying high, to get high and you keep using, 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 you know, I can see that. You are at a slightly greater risk of death if you try to get high on Vivitrol. Now, there should be all kinds of counseling around that and that sort of thing, but to not use Vivitrol, which has saved a bunch of lives, because you might lose a, a few lives, seems counterproductive to me. And I don't know that I have seen the studies that show how many lives it saves versus how many lives it might, it might, how many deaths it might lead to. Well, and also you can't know for sure if they would have overdosed anyway. Right. There's no. Right? You can't I mean, do the study. These were the people who were relapsing, right. right? So whether they had the Vivitrol on board or not, I mean, that's hard to know. What I think you could do, it, as far as the study goes, is just take a normal overdose death rate in a population and then give that population Vivitrol and see how many overdose deaths you have. I cannot believe that the rate is higher in people on Vivitrol than it is on people not on Vivitrol. But that, that study's not out there. Yeah. But we were told by a gentleman that, you know, some autopsy reports had found Vivitrol in a few patients that had overdosed and that he wasn't recommending Vivitrol anymore. Yeah, that's too bad. I, that's, a, that's jumping to a conclusion that is not in the data. Well, and also how many, um, I'd like to know the statistics on how many overdose deaths have Suboxone on board too. Right plenty. or methadone because plenty. plenty of the people who are on both of those medications relapse. Yep. You know, yep, and sure. relapse and just regular use will bring about overdose deaths. So. For sure. I guess the bottom line of what I wanted to get out today about Matt is the country seems to be leaning towards more and more replacement therapy, and I'm not totally on board with that. I. They use a lot of data, but the thing you can't really put to data is quality of life. What you can, you can, all you can measure is life or no life, really. They, they have a very hard time measuring quality of life. But I will tell you, my friends in the rooms of the meetings that I go to that are abstinent, their quality of life is better than my friends that I know that are on long-term suboxone maintenance. They just are. And methadone, in my mind, is even worse. A lot of long-term methadone patients just seem to not progress in life to me. They have to get up every morning at 5 o'clock to go into the methadone clinic, get their dose of methadone, and then they're tired all day, and they don't seem to progress at their work. And listen, this is my experience. It may not be borne out by statistics, but it for sure is my experience that people on long-term stuff have a different quality of life than people that are totally abstinent. Now, I get it. People overdose and die, too. And that's a unbelievable tragedy. But I don't know that the reaction to that needs to be, let's throw every single person that comes to treatment on a long-term maintenance therapy that, that alters their life. Right. And I think that's the point, right? 
I want prescribers to recognize that this is not necessarily the only option. It's not that black and white. I agree, it's right? It's definitely not that black and white. There is a lot of nuance here that you can't put on paper anywhere. Yeah. And I think to just to automatically say black and white, every person who's ever gotten addicted to an opiate needs to be on Suboxone for the rest of their lives is what it feels like the government's pushing us towards. Yeah. And I don't like it. I don't agree with it. I think there is a lot of more, a lot more skill and art in the treatment of of substance use disorders than just, hey, throw everybody on a long-term maintenance program. Yeah. That's my thoughts. Super tough, because when somebody becomes a Suboxone prescriber, what do they do? Right? They don't make money if they put them on Vivitrol. No right? question. So, it's, I mean, no it's a question. challenge, right? a financial right? incentive to put a bunch of people on Suboxone and make a bunch of money. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's totally what happens, like, that they're just out for the money. I think Suboxone prescribers are trying to um, help in their in their cause, but there's got to be that component. But of, I, I will tell you, forget the money. It's easy to have somebody come in your office and say, how you doing? Any relapses? No, you sleeping okay. Okay, great. Here's your Suboxone. That's easy. What's hard is to encourage people to change their lives. So hard, right? To maybe give up taking opiates. That takes a lot of work, and there's no money in it. Yeah. You can counsel a patient for two hours about how important it is for them to maybe clear their mind of all mood-altering substances, but you can't get reimbursed for that two hours. Yeah. Or you can bring them in and say, you're doing okay? Here's your Suboxone. Yeah. And you can get reimbursed for that. So that's tough, and I think that's a little bit why the country's heading this way. Doctors aren't arguing all that much because yeah. it's just easier. Opiate use disorder and alcohol use disorder are tough battles. And it feels to me like the government wants me to throw my arms up and say I can't win, so I might as well just put everybody on Suboxone. Yeah. And I can't bring myself to do that in good conscience. Yeah. A great, great point to end on. That's about it. We hope you have a wonderful day. We hope you stay safe and clean if you need help. You know how to reach us. That's not true because we don't have a way to reach us. But soon we'll have a website up for you. Anyway, have a wonderful day. Sounds good. All right. See ya. I'll figure something out how to put that all down. <laughs>